0: to look to God's Word this morning. And this morning, I want to look at Isaiah chapter 41. Since we're jumping right into the middle of Isaiah, let me just take a minute as you're opening your Bibles to remind us of what's happening in Isaiah at this point. If you were to flip back the last 10 or 15 chapters leading up to Isaiah 41, you would find that Isaiah has issued warning after warning about Israel's sin, particularly the southern tribe of Judah. He's warned that judgment is coming because they have abandoned God and his law and his covenant. And although Isaiah is speaking some 115 years before exile actually comes, his warnings are true. And chapter 39 ended with the ominous prophecy that Babylon will carry Jerusalem away along with its wealth and its sons. But God, in his compassion and grace, does not only speak words of judgment to his people, knowing that they would be defeated, shamed, helpless, and exiled from the land, God ahead of time also spoke words of comfort for his people to hold on to in their punishment. And these words of comfort come in Isaiah chapters 40 to 66. These chapters pull back the heavens to remind Israel of who God is and what he is doing in his work of redemption. And so we come to Isaiah chapter 41, and God is speaking And let's pick up and read verses 1 through 20. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us draw together near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely. By paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am He. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, It is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be nothing as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, and the Holy One of Israel you shall glory." When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together that they may see and know may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Oh God, these are your words. You have given them to us. I pray that you would use them to comfort us, to encourage us, and draw us to yourself through Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. I'm sure that many of you, either as students or as fellow teachers, who have have observed many different teachers in the classroom, And if you observe different teachers teaching in a classroom, you know that there's several different kinds of teachers. You have the teachers who hold respected authority and they're obeyed quickly by their students. And then there's those teachers who have sort of a loose and very tenuous grasp on chaos that's about to break out at any moment. And if you can picture these two types of teachers, you also know that the teachers who have to yell a lot and scream loudly are the ones who don't have respected authority and don't have things under control. Because the teacher who has authority only needs to say, okay, it's time to begin, and order is restored. Well, in verse 1 of our text, God is speaking. And this is the God who has just revealed in the previous chapter that he is the creator of the ends of the earth, before whom all nations are as a drop in a bucket and the inhabitants are like grasshoppers. We are in the presence of absolute power and absolute authority. And he only needs to say, Listen, coastlands, draw near for judgment. And they draw near to him, trembling. As we walk through this text, God speaks and says three things to us. First, he tells us what he's doing. Then he tells us how the nations respond. And then he speaks to his people to Israel, to tell them how they should respond. Follow me through each of these that we'll spend most of our time on God's words to Israel. In verses 2 through 4, the Lord tells us what he is doing. God declares that he is stirring up one from the east, someone who is going to have victory at every step, who's trampling on kings and driving them underfoot, who will have success on every path he takes. Commentators are nearly universal in noting that this is Cyrus, the king from the east, who will come and sweep through all of Mesopotamia. In fact, Isaiah is going to talk more about Cyrus a few chapters later. If you uh, think back to your middle school world history class, maybe that was last spring and that already feels like ages ago, or maybe it was 60 years ago, you may remember that Cyrus was a king who swept through the ancient kingdoms in Mesopotamia In the 6th century BC, he swept through Turkey, through the Middle East, through Egypt, even to the borders of India, having success in overthrowing each power in turn. But the emphasis of these verses is not even so much on the facts of what God is up to. The emphasis even more is on the greatness of God himself who is doing them. The fact that an unconquerable warrior is coming from the East and overthrowing the balance of power is frightening enough. But it's the fact that this is no lucky warrior who happens to be winning his battles. It's the fact that God, the one who calls generations from the beginning, the I am, it's he who's doing this. It's his plan who has been carried out. And that's what makes this so terrifying to the nations. Because if God is doing this, there is no hope of opposing his will. This is what God is up to, raising up a conqueror. And it is he who is doing it. In verses 5 through 7, then, God tells us about the response of the nations. Verse 5 says these nations gather together. They're afraid and they're trembling. They have a conqueror coming. It appears that he's indefeatable. And now they learn that God himself is behind him, bringing him his victories. Verse 6 tells us that they gather together to encourage each other to be strong and perhaps have a chance of success. If any of you have played on a sports team, and, and you know when, when the next game you're playing the undefeated team, the, most, the biggest powerhouse in the league, you've got a couple options. You can just call ahead and forfeit, or what most of us do is we get together in the locker room and we say, all right, guys, we've got to bond together, we've got to be strong, do the best we've ever done, and, and then maybe, who knows, maybe we'll have a chance of success. That's verse 6, as the nations come together and encourage each other, be strong. But then verse 7 tells us that not only are the nations strengthening each other, they're also strengthening their gods. And I want you to just stop and read verse 7 slowly, because this verse is hilarious, and it's meant to be. It's meant to have the Israelite laughing as they read this verse. The craftsmen of the Coastal Nations come together to try to strengthen their idols and make them really, really well in their workshop so that God won't be able to beat them. And you see the goldsmiths are saying, okay, smooth it really well now. Hammer it really well. And if we solder it really well, maybe God won't be able to defeat our idol. And then, and then the line that really gets me is their wooden idol. They, they decide they're going to add a few extra nails to their wooden idol so that then God really won't be able to beat him. And I have, you have the, the ridiculousness here of this man in his workshop, hammering nails and saying, if only I just add one more nail, maybe God won't be able to defeat my idol. I don't know if you remember sort of probably seventh grade physical science class where you had to make one of those structures out of dry pasta noodles and tape and whoever made the best structure that would last the longest, you know, one. And there was always that one group whose structure was completely incompetent. And it would start to fall immediately and they would just say, more tape, more tape. If we just put more tape, it'll work. And we're laughing in the corner knowing no amount of tape can save their project. That's what Israel's gonna be doing here as they hear God tell. This is what the nations are doing. They're adding nails to their idol and they're laughing saying, how ridiculous. How could any idol stand up to the power of God? Well, this is what the nations are doing, strengthening each other and their gods. But in the face of upheaval, fear, and a conqueror sweeping in from the east, God turns to Israel, to his people, and addresses them and tells them how they should respond. Now as you hear God's words here, remember the situation. Israel is one of several very small nations in this area of the Middle East. And if the powerful empires of the world are trembling before this conqueror, what hope does Israel have? And not only that, But when this prophecy comes about, Israel will already be conquered and exiled. They're waiting for comfort and restoration from God, and instead they see a new comforter who's going to take them into exile out of their exile. They're looking for restoration, and this conqueror seems to threaten to take them further away from any hope that they would have. Things are moving from bad to worse. The circumstances hold even less hope for Israel, and yet... The Lord turns to this nation, this nation of Israel, whom he has described as the least of all the nations over the earth and speaks, speaks words of endearment, words of love, of choice, of comfort, of power. He says, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, offspring of Abraham, my friend, fear not. God identifies Israel as his and when you are God's people, There is no need for fear. But maybe an Israelite sitting there would say, but how? God, how? We know this routine of unstoppable conquerors. We've already fallen to several of them. We know how this works. How am I, an already exiled people, supposed to believe and trust and take your word that I don't need to fear? Because I look around and see how things are going to play out. Well, watch. Watch what the Lord says to encourage his people and why they do not need to fear. And first, the first thing to notice is just a single letter. Just a single letter. You know the importance of one letter. Anyone who lives in a texting age with autocorrect knows how important one letter is. A text can go from funny to offensive and great to terrible with one letter. Well, read Isaiah closely and you'll find that there's a one-letter word that makes all the difference. And it's the letter I. Look at what God says. Glance down through verses 8 through 20 and see how many times God says what I will do. And note what God says I will do on behalf of my people. I have chosen you. I took you from the ends of the earth. I have not cast you off. I am with you. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will uphelp you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I hold your right hand. I am the one who says fear not. I am the one who helps you. I make you a threshing sledge to judge the nations. I will answer the poor and the needy who seek water. I will not forsake them. I open rivers on bare heights and springs in the valleys. See, it's I, it is the Lord who is doing these things. And ultimately, the reason Israel need not fear when that seems impossible is the character of the God who speaks to them. This is the God who spoke to Moses and said, Who am I? I am. I am the God who is before all, who transcends time, who is totally self-sufficient. As one commentator put it, If anyone other than the Lord had said to Israel, Fear not, in the face of an unstoppable conqueror, the words would have been meaningless. But it is he who speaks, who has already given his people his help who makes all the difference. Israel's confidence comes not just from the details of what is spoken, but from the one who speaks these words and who commits himself to their help and care. It starts, all the comfort starts with the God who speaks and who says, I am the one who helps you. But notice that God doesn't just say, trust me, though that should be enough. God proceeds to give three reasons why Israel can trust him. And note these three things. First, In verses 8 and 9, God reminds Israel of who they are. They are God's chosen people, people that God has taken from the ends of the earth, people that God has called from the farthest corners to be His. They are my people, my servant. And calling Israel my servant is not uh, a demeaning term, as in, like, you are my servant. It is a term of endearment. You are my servant. You are my people. You are offspring of my friend, Abraham. See, Israel might feel weak and needy in the face of God's judgment. And in fact, they are. But God has chosen them, and that changes everything. God reminds Israel of who they are, his chosen people. Second, in verses 10 through 16, God reminds Israel of his promises, and he rehearses promise after promise that he has made to them. So look through this list. God begins in verses 11 and 12 to promise that all who oppose Israel will be confounded and brought to nothing. Yes, Israel might see an unstoppable conqueror coming from the east, but God promises, I will defeat your enemies. They shall be put to shame, not you. Those who strive against you will be as nothing. This promise still stands, even when it looks like it doesn't. Then God goes on in verse 13, And also verse 10, to make the promise that I am with you. I am the one who holds your right hand. And I love the pairing of verse 10 and 13. In verse 10, God says, I will strengthen you with my right hand. The right hand is the hand of strength. And God says, I am upholding you in my strong right arm. And then in 13, he says, with my strong arm, I will take your right hand. I am yours. I am the one who takes your hand. As I read those verses, I picture the trip to the beach. You've all been at the beach, I would believe, at some point with young children, maybe a a five-year-old who wants to go out and jump in the waves. And that five-year-old can't go more than a few feet before the waves are too much for them. They would be thrown over by the force of the waves. But then out comes their father. Who takes his right hand and takes hold of the child's hand. And now they can play in the waves. The waves are still just as strong. They have still just as much strength. But they are safe to play in the waves. Because their father holds them with his strong right hand. That's the picture that God gives his people. I am upholding you. I am strengthening you. I have your hand with my strong right hand. That is a precious promise. And then... He goes on to promise in verses 15 and 16 that God is actually going to use Israel as the instrument to judge the nations, to thresh them. Maybe you go back to Genesis chapter 12 where God had promised Abraham that those who bless him will be blessed, those who curse him will be cursed, and in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. In other words, God was saying, your fate depends on your response to my people whom I have chosen. And God here says, this promise still remains. You, Israel, or at least a man from you, will be the key to the judgment of the nations. And so God rehearses these promises that are still true. And then in verses 17 through 20, the third God reminds Israel of who he is and the kinds of things he does. When the poor and the needy seek water and there is none, the Lord answers them. And it isn't just that God gives a cup of water to someone who's thirsty. When the poor and the needy are in impossible circumstances, wandering in a desert, there God comes and meets them, meets their thirst, and makes springs of water burst forth and creates cool forests for their comfort in the midst of their need. This is a beautiful description of God's renewing work. But it's not just some sort of metaphorical promise, like, I'm a God who does nice things for you, kind of like giving you water. It's not that. Because God has actually done these very things for his people. You remember when Israel was wandering in the wilderness, and they were thirsty and weary? And in Exodus 15, God unexpectedly brings them to Elam, a place of 12 springs and 70 palm trees or when they continued on in the wilderness in Exodus 17 and they thought they were going to die of thirst and God causes water to pour out from a rock so there are refreshing pools so that his people may have life. God says, remember, I've already done these things for you. I'm a God who does these things, this kind of salvation, who offers this kind of life. And he hints that he will continue to do it for his people. So here's God's word to Israel. Do not fear. Remember who you are. I have chosen you. Remember my promises. I will help you. Remember who I am. I answer the needy with miracles of life. And as it turns out, we can look back at history and see that all of God's promises came true. That unstoppable conqueror, Cyrus, yes, he did sweep through every single nation. But one of the first things he did in the first years of his realm was issue a decree that God's people could return home and rebuild their city in the temple. Israel might look like you should be afraid of this conqueror, but fear not, I am with you, and I am using him to restore you and make all of my promises come true. But at the same time, Cyrus doesn't fulfill all the language here. Ultimately, the Holy One of Israel, their Redeemer, is up to something even more significant, something even more all-comprehensive in restoring its people. Because 750 years after Isaiah spoke these promises, the New Testament speaks and tells us that one man, Jesus, has come to fulfill every one of these promises. All of God's promises are yes and amen in this Christ. And so in Christ, the enemies of God's people are conquered. In Christ, the Holy One of Israel shows up to redeem. In Christ, God Threshes the nations. In Christ, God's people rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. In Christ, the poor and needy and the parched have found springs of water welling up inside a new creation in its lush, soul deep satisfaction. In Christ, the promises that I will be with you, I will not forsake you, I will help you all come true. Israel can find the perfect, final fulfillment of all of these promises in Christ. And in a glorious, And for many unexpected move, these promises are then held out so that not just Israel, but anyone from all times and nations who put their faith in this Christ can have these promises true for them as well. And so, since all of these promises are fulfilled in Christ, we shouldn't be surprised when Christ himself stands in the middle of a seemingly death-bringing storm and says to his disciples, Fear not. Will you trust me? Do you know who I am? You need not fear. Just when fears, fear not seemed most impossible, Jesus fe- speaks these words, Fear not, I have chosen you, I am with you, I hold you. Well, our time is short. These promises are available to us in Christ. God was faithful to his people in every one of them. And I trust that the Spirit will apply these in many different circumstances in your life. But let me mention at least three applications that strike me from the promises of this chapter. First, circumstances do not need to determine whether we are afraid or not. Israel faced an unconquerable hero, one situation that seemed impossible for them not to be afraid. And yet God said, don't pay attention to circumstances, pay attention to me who speaks to you. How many times in life do we face fear? Circumstances that we think, well, how can I respond in anything but worry and anxiety and stress? What else can I do, God? Do you see what's happening? Do you see what the circumstances are? But the Lord knows these things. He knows there are circumstances in a broken world that will hammer us and try us. But the circumstances don't determine our need for fear or for rest. Because the words of our God come to us and say, do not be afraid. If you are in Christ, Remember who you are. God has chosen you. He has said to you, you are mine, my servant and my friend. If you are in Christ, do not be afraid, for God has said, I am always with you even to the end of the age. Cast your cares on me because I care for you. Do not be afraid. I hold you with my right hand and nothing shall separate me from you. These are promises that are for us in Christ. And so whatever circumstances there may be, do what you may circumstances of life. God invites his people to come and rest in solid words of comfort. Second, by contrast, I cannot get the picture of this idol maker hammering nails into his wooden idol out of my my mind. And I think, well, this is useless. This is pathetic. How can anyone think that would help? But if you were a Canaanite in 700 B.C., This makes perfect sense. For generations, your people have always looked to idols for comfort. You've always seen your successes and your safety coming from your idols. This makes perfect sense. The question, okay, yes, nails in a wooden statue may appear ridiculous to us now, but what are the things of this world that we try to find our safety and our security in? Each one of us, there are things of this world that we're trying to nail into our idols and say, if only I can get a bit more money then I will be secure. If only I can have the approval and the acceptance of these people, I'll be okay. Maybe it's success of our children. Maybe it's likes on our selfies. Maybe it's more time for relaxation and rest. Maybe it's leaders we can trust in. Maybe it's a vision for our nation that we think I'd be secure if that came to pass. There are many things that our culture says will offer security, and we are busy nailing nails into them to make them more secure rather than to trust in the words of our God. Will you join me in looking at our lives to figure out what these nails are and what idols we're trying to shore up to find our security in? And finally, all the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. Everything from this text, the thrill of these words of the Lord who says, I am the Lord your God. I uphold you. I am with you. I will answer the poor and needy with new life. All of these words are ours in Christ. They're offered to us in Jesus himself. Will you come to him? If you have already come to him, don't leave him. Never cease to drink deeply from the springs he has caused to well up inside of us take time to ponder and rejoice in the new life he has given us. And so whether you are delighting this morning in his goodness, rejoicing in this life he's given us, or whether this morning you're struggling but trying to trust and not fear in the face of difficulty, the comfort of this passage is offered to us in Christ. And so perhaps the best way to conclude is with the well-known prayer of St. Patrick, Who, as he faced pressures and trials and temptations, prayed this way. He said, Christ be with me. Christ before me and Christ behind me. Christ in me. Christ beneath me and Christ above me. Christ on my right. Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down. Christ when I sit down. Christ when I arise. Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in the eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. In Christ is all of our hope, all of our joy, all of our security forever. In Christ is all our ability to say, I do not fear, even when that seems completely impossible. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Oh God, when we read this passage of Scripture We hear that you are doing things that cause nations to tremble. But we also hear that you are doing things for the good, for the salvation, and for the life of your people. We read such wonderful words like, I will be with you. You are mine. I have chosen you. I will not cast you off. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to remember these words, to know them, to believe them, and to find in them the comfort that you intend when the God of the universe comes and makes these promises. May they thrill us as we go into our week, as we face difficulties, as we face joys. May we never cease to find comfort in the springs of life that our God has offered to well up in us in Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen.